Thank you for downloading and welcome. This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals bringing you medical information about the management of diabetes from a primary care perspective. My name is Fernando Florido and I am a GP in the United Kingdom. In this episode, I'm going to tell you about the updated NICE guidelines in the management of type 2 diabetes in adults, or guideline NG28. These guidelines were last updated on the 31st of March 2022. In this episode, I am only going to refer to the drug management of blood glucose rather than the full guideline. The other recommendations have not really changed significantly, and if you're interested in them, you can listen to the previous podcast that I have uploaded on the subject. You will be able to find links to them in the podcast description. I have also uploaded YouTube videos on this subject and other NICE guidance. A link to access the channel can also be found in the podcast description. As ever, all information is correct at the time of recording and all views and opinions are my own. I hope that you enjoy this episode. You may be aware that until the publication of this NICE guideline update, there has been quite a disparity between the advice given by NICE and other international guidelines such as those of the American Diabetes Association or the European Association for the Study of Diabetes, amongst many others. This is because of the funding of the British National Health System, which expects NICE to assess not only the clinical merits of each medical intervention, including drugs, but also their cost-effectiveness. After this update, the NICE guidelines are now more similar to the American and European guidelines when considering SGLT2 inhibitors, but they still differ very significantly when it comes to GLP mimetics. This is because NICE, at this stage, does not consider them to be cost-effective, except in some very specific circumstances. We must know that there is a visual summary to provide an overview of the recommendations and additional information to support medicine's choice, and the link will be placed in the podcast description. Now, when it comes to choosing drug treatments, and before we start any medication, we will need to discuss with adults with type 2 diabetes the benefits and risks of drug treatment and the options available, and base the choice of drug treatment on a number of things such as the person's individual clinical circumstances, preference and needs, the effectiveness of the drug treatment in terms of metabolic response and cardiovascular and renal protection, safety and tolerability of the drug treatment, monitoring requirements, license indications or combinations available, and the cost. So if two drugs in the same class are appropriate, we must choose the option which the lowest acquisition cost. We just need to be aware that there are separate guidelines for the drug treatment during pregnancy and the pre-pregnancy period. Now, in terms of rescue therapy at any phase of treatment, if an adult with type 2 diabetes is symptomatically hyperglycemic, we need to consider insulin or sulfonylurea and review the treatment when blood glucose control has been achieved. Um, Now, when it comes to first-line drug treatment, There is a visual summary on first-line drug treatment that offers an overview of the recommendations and I will also put a link to this in the podcast description. 
We will basically start by offering standard release metformin as first-line drug treatment for adults with type 2 diabetes. We will then assess the person's cardiovascular status and risk to determine whether they have chronic heart failure or established atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease or are at high risk of developing cardiovascular disease. Because SGLT2 inhibitors can improve cardiovascular outcomes, we will do the following. If they have chronic heart failure or established atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, we will offer an SGLT2 inhibitor with proven cardiovascular benefit in addition to metformin. If they are high risk of developing cardiovascular disease, we will consider an SGLT2 inhibitor with proven cardiovascular benefit in addition to metformin. So a slight difference, uh, we will offer it if they have the problem or we will consider it if they are at high risk. Uh, to assess whether people are at high risk of developing cardiovascular disease, it is recommended to use the Q-Risk 2 tool for adults with type 2 diabetes. We need to be aware that lifetime cardiovascular risk may be underestimated in people aged under 40 using this tool. So we need to consider other risk factors too. There are recommendations on using risk scores and Q-Risk 2 to assess cardiovascular disease risk in adults with type 2 diabetes in NICE guidelines on cardiovascular disease, risk assessment and reduction, including lipid modification. And I will put a link to this guideline in the podcast description too. In terms of choosing an SGLT2 inhibitor with cardiovascular benefit, the evidence shows that SGLT2 inhibitors as a class of drugs are most likely to be cost-effective in combination with metformin, and there are also varying levels of certainty in the clinical trials and meta-analyses. And this uncertainty is about which individual SGLT2 inhibitor was effective at improving cardiovascular outcomes and whether there were real differences in cardiovascular benefits between the different SGLT2 inhibitors. For example, for hospitalization for heart failure, empaglifosin, canaglifosin, ertuglifosin and dapaglifosin produced a clinical meaningful reduction. However, the network meta-analysis could not differentiate between the SGLT2 inhibitors. When starting an adult with type 2 diabetes on dual therapy with metformin and an SGLT2 inhibitor as first-line therapy, we will introduce the drugs sequentially, starting with metformin and checking tolerability. We will then start the SGLT2 inhibitor as soon as metformin tolerability is confirmed. We will gradually increase the dose of the standard release metformin over several weeks to minimize the risk of gastrointestinal side effects in adults with type 2 diabetes. If they experience gastrointestinal side effects with standard release metformin, we should consider a trial of modified release metformin. However, if metformin is contraindicated or not tolerated for first-line drug treatment, we will consider the following. If they have chronic heart failure or established cardiovascular disease, we will offer an SGLT2 inhibitor with proven cardiovascular benefit. If they are high risk of developing cardiovascular disease, then we will consider it. For first-line treatment for adults with type 2 diabetes who are not 
in either of these groups. If metformin is contraindicated or not tolerated, we will consider a DPP4 inhibitor or pioglitazone or a sulfonylurea, although an SGLT2 inhibitor can be prescribed for people for whom the sulfonylurea or pioglitazone is not appropriate and a DPP4 inhibitor would otherwise be prescribed. So it's slightly more restricted if there's no cardiovascular risk or high risk of it, but you can still use it. There have been multiple instances of avoidable diabetic ketoacidosis or DKA associated to SGLT2 inhibitors and addressing modifiable risk factors before starting an SGLT2 inhibitor could reduce the risk of DKA and make the drug safer for the person with type 2 diabetes. Therefore, before starting an SGLT2 inhibitor, we must check whether the person may be at increased risk of diabetic ketoacidosis, for example, if they have had a previous episode, if they are unwell with the current illness, or if they are following a very low carbohydrate or ketogenic diet. And then we will address modifiable risk factors for DKA before starting an SGLT2 inhibitor, for example, for people who are following a very low carbohydrate or ketogenic diet, they may need to delay treatment until they have changed their diet. Adults with type 2 diabetes who are overweight or obese may wish to try a ketogenic diet to reverse or reduce the severity of their diabetes or induce remission. However, because there may be an increased risk of DKA associated with SGLT2 inhibitors and such diets, it is important to tell people about these risks and to advise them to discuss any planned change to a very low carbohydrate or ketogenic diet with a healthcare professional first. Therefore, we will advise adults with type 2 diabetes who are taking an SGLT2 inhibitor about the need to minimize their risk of DKA by not starting a very low carbohydrate or ketogenic diet without discussing it with a healthcare professional because they may need to suspend SGLT2 inhibitor treatment. When it comes to patients with type 2 diabetes and chronic kidney disease, there are recommendations on SGLT2 inhibitors in a separate section of this guideline. These are as follows. For adults with type 2 diabetes and CKD who are taking an ARB or an ACE inhibitor titrated to the highest tolerated dose, we will offer an SGLT2 inhibitor in addition to the ARB or ACE inhibitor, if the ACR, albumin-creatinine ratio, is over 30, and we will consider an SGLT2 inhibitor in addition to the ARB or ACE inhibitor, if the albumin-creatinine ratio or ACR is between 3 and 30. However, because some of the SGLT2 inhibitors cannot be prescribed when the estimated glomerular filtration rates or eGFR levels are too low, we will need to ensure that the eGFR thresholds are met. We must note that not all SGLT2 inhibitors have been licensed for the indication of CKD, although this is likely to change over time. Dapaglifosin is definitely one of the licensed ones. This is because clinical trial evidence suggests that dapaglifosin plus standard care is more effective than standard care alone in slowing disease progression. There's a separate NICE guideline for dapaglifosin 
and CKD, which I will also put in the podcast description. When reviewing or considering changing treatments for adults with type 2 diabetes, we should think about and discuss the following. We need to take into account factors such as adverse events, adhering to existing medicines, advice about diet and lifestyle and prescribed doses and formulations. We also need to consider stopping medicines that have had no impact on glycemic control or weight unless there is an additional clinical benefit such as cardiovascular or renal protection. We will also consider whether switching rather than adding drugs could be effective. Plus, we will take into account all the considerations about treatment choice described earlier, such as individual preferences and needs, the effectiveness, safety and tolerability of the drugs, etc. When it comes to considering adding an SGLT2 inhibitor at any stage after first-line treatment, there are some considerations to consider. And these are basically if they have or develop chronic heart failure or cardiovascular disease, we need to offer an SGLT2 inhibitor or replace an existing drug with the SGLT2 inhibitor. If they are or become at high risk of developing cardiovascular disease, we will have to consider doing this, that is either adding an SGLT2 inhibitor or replacing an existing drug with the SGLT2 inhibitor. When it comes to treatment options, if further interventions are needed, there is a visual summary on treatment options if further interventions are needed, and I will put a link to this in the podcast description. First of all, we need to introduce drugs used in combination therapy in a stepwise manner, checking for tolerability and effectiveness of each drug. As we have already mentioned, if monotherapy has not controlled the HbA1c, we will consider adding a second drug that is an SGLT2 inhibitor for people who meet the cardiovascular criteria or otherwise a DPP4 inhibitor or pioglitazone or a sulfonylurea. If dual therapy with metformin and another oral drug has not continued to control the HbA1c, we will consider either triple therapy by switching or adding treatments for different drug classes up to triple therapy including combination of metformin, sulfonylureas, DPP4 inhibitors, and for people who meet the cardiovascular criteria, SGLT2 inhibitors. Or we could consider going directly from geotherapy to starting insulin. However, if metformin is contraindicated or not tolerated, and geotherapy with two oral drugs has not controlled the HbA1c, then we will need to consider going directly to insulin treatment. Finally, if triple therapy with metformin and two other oral drugs is not effective, not tolerated or contraindicated, we will consider triple therapy by switching one drug for a GLP-1 mimetic only if certain strict conditions are met. And these are if the body mass index or BMI is 35 or higher, adjusting accordingly for people from black, Asian and other minority ethnic groups and there are specific psychological or other medical problems associated with obesity. Or if they have a PMI lower than 35 and for whom insulin therapy would have a significant occupation implication or weight loss would benefit other significant obesity related comorbidities. And we will only continue GLP-1 mimetic therapy 
if there's a reduction of at least 11 millimol per mole or 1% in HbA1c and weight loss of at least 3% of initial body weight in 6 months. When considering insulin-based treatments, patients should receive a structured program using active insulin dose titration that encompasses full training and support, as well as appropriate driving advice. When starting insulin, we should continue to offer metformin for people without contraindications or intolerance, but we will review the continued need for other blood glucose-lowering therapies. In general, Combination therapy with a GLP-1 mimetic and insulin should only be considered along with specialist care advice and ongoing support from a consultant-led multidisciplinary team. Insulin in combination with other oral hypoglycemic agents, including SGLT2 inhibitors, can be an option for treating type 2 diabetes. When it comes to managing the insulin therapy, we will start insulin from a choice of the following insulin types and regimens. First, we will offer NPH insulin injected once or twice daily according to need, but we will consider starting both NPH and short-acting insulin, particularly if a person's HbA1c is 75 millimol per mole or 9% or higher, and these insulins could be administered either separately or as a pre-mixed or biphasic human insulin preparation. We will also consider as an alternative to NPH insulin using insulin detemir or insulin glargine if the person needs help from someone else to inject insulin and the use of detemir or glargine insulins would reduce the frequency of injections from twice to once daily or if the person is restricted by recurrent symptomatic hypoglycemic episodes, or the person would otherwise need twice daily NPH insulin injection in combination with oral glucose-lowering drugs. We will consider pre-mixed or biphasic preparations that include short-acting insulin analogues rather than pre-mixed preparations that include short-acting human insulin preparations if the person prefers injecting insulin immediately before a meal or hypoglycemia is a problem or blood glucose levels rise markedly after meals. We will consider switching to insulin detemir or insulin glargine from NPH insulin if there are issues with NPH such as not reaching the target HbA1c because of hypoglycemia or for those who experience significant hypoglycemia or who cannot use the device needed to inject NPH or need help from someone else to administer insulin injections and for whom switching would reduce the number of daily injections. We will monitor adults with type 2 diabetes who are on a basal insulin regimen with NPH insulin, insulin detemir or insulin glargine for the need for short-acting insulin before meals or a pre-mixed biphasic insulin preparation. We will monitor adults with type 2 diabetes who are on pre-mixed or biphasic insulin for the need for a further injection of short-acting insulin before meals or for a change to a basal bolus regimen. When starting an insulin for which a biosimilar is available, we will use the product with the lowest acquisition cost. 
I will not say much about the guidance of insulin delivery for adults with type 2 diabetes, but you can see the section on insulin delivery in the NICE guideline on type 1 diabetes, and I will put a link in the podcast description. This is the end of this episode. I hope that you have enjoyed it, and I hope that you will join me in the next one. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.